Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and as always, it's great to have you here with us today. Now, at the time of recording, I was still getting over a bad cough, so my apologies for any impact that that's had on the editing of this recording. So with that said, on with today's show. The words icon and legend are totally overused in hairdressing and the problem that it creates is that when you really do meet someone regarded as a genuine icon or legend in the hairdressing industry then there are no superlatives left to aptly describe their status. Now having said that today's guest would never call himself an icon or a legend anyway and it's that humility combined with decades at the top creatively that have earned him the respect of hairdressers everywhere. My guest today is the one and only Mr. Trevor Sorby. Trevor started his career working in his father's barbershop in Paisley in Scotland, but went on to become one of the biggest names in the world of hairdressing, and along the way won four British Hairdresser of the Year awards, was awarded a doctorate from a Scottish university, and was made a member of the British Empire from Her Majesty the Queen. Now, this is a slightly longer episode than normal, but then it's not every day that you get to speak with Trevor Sorby and reflect on his brilliant career. So rather than split it into two episodes or edit it down, enjoy the opportunity to listen to a real industry icon and the wisdom that he shares of a lifetime in this industry. In today's podcast, we will discuss the importance of nurturing creativity, the art of being a great onstage presenter, and the wisdom that comes with age, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Mr. Trevor Sorby. Hello. I'm uh, pleased to see you after so many years, Anthony. It's great. Yeah, it is a long time. That's actually what I'm going to talk about right now, because you know I've seen you, but I haven't met you face-to-face for probably 23 years now. And the last yeah. time was when I interviewed you. And that was in the year 2000. And you're probably not going to remember this, but I came to your salon in Floral Street and uh, mm-hmm. I said to the receptionist, I'm here to see Trevor. And uh, she said, take a seat over here. And I, I took a seat and I was sat there and I was looking into the salon. And I saw this guy that was and the salon was busy and I saw this guy sweeping the floor. And I was just sort of vaguely aware of this guy sweeping the floor. And then he turned around and it was you. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, my God, you know, I don't know how often you do that, but it sort of stuck with me as being representative of who Trevor Sorby, the man, really is. So so what, what I wanted to do was start by asking you was how important was your upbringing and the humility that you have as a person in making you a success in this industry? Because here you are at that point in your career multi-awarded hairdresser, very globally successful hairdresser, and you're sweeping the floor. And I just thought that was amazing to see. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, I think I've worked at 
Vidal Sassoon for six years. I worked for Tony and Guy. I worked for John Frieda. And I had a wonderful experience in all of them. But I learned things in all of them. And I always thought that people that are, have their name above the door, it's like that's your pinnacle to get to in people's minds. But, but I also know that you can't go over that name because that name won't allow you because he's the main man or woman. Yeah. Now, I've, in all my time that I've walked around salons with you know, Anthony Muscolo, John Frieda, Nicky Clark, Fidel, the, the whole lot, I've all seen a, a way that they conduct themselves in the salon. And I think what impressed me most was Vidal Sassoon. He came into my shop one day. I had no idea he was coming. He just walked in. Hi, Trev. I went, hi, oh, oh, hi. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, it really was exciting. And he went around all the clients. He introduced himself. Hi, my name's Vidal Sassoon. You know, you're in a very good salon here, and I'm sure Trev will be looking after you. He went around all the juniors. He introduced himself, even to the cleaners. Wow. And I just thought, what a humble, lovely man. When he left, I, I, I said to myself, if I could be half the man that he is, humble, giving himself to people that he's never met, I just thought it was a wonderful thing. And I decided, even before then, to be honest, but I decided there's only one way to steer a ship and that is by leadership. If I can sweep the floor, you can sweep the floor. Mm. If I can shampoo a client, which I do, mm. you can shampoo. Help them on with their coats, make them coffees. I go around my salon. I, I'm very restricted now to how often I can go because I have an illness. But when I go, um, and I can't cut hair anymore, I, I've gone through cancer treatment and one of the side effects is I've lost the use of my fingers so I can't and yeah, as you know when you do hair you, you feel hair hair is it's the material that you feel the quality of it the thickness the curl everything and I can't do that anymore but what I do do is I go around and I obviously say excuse me madam I just want to say hello to my staff member um, and then I start talking to them and I sit down for 5, 10, 15 minutes chatting away and they say oh, are you Trevor Sorby? I go yeah yeah how long have you been coming here? oh I've been coming here 25 years god it's like ships in the night isn't it we just keep missing each other and we get down and have such friendly chats and uh, I've restarted reading Vidal Sassoon's autobiography. Years ago, he signed his book to me, and I was in the other night, and this well, I'm talking like three nights ago now, I saw his book in my rack of books. I thought, I'm going to read that again. And I started reading it, and there was one point where he was saying that and a woman came in and sort of said, oh, I would like my hair sort of bouffant and big and whatever. He would turn around and say, Madam, he said, um, I've got a very good friend down the road that 
does exactly that type of hairdressing. Unfortunately, we don't. But let me make a phone call and I'll get you booked in there. And he turned clients away. I loved that. I loved that. Not kick somebody out. And he didn't kick them out. He went to a place that would cater for her needs. And I that bravery. And he did it. He was so focused. Client said, said to me recently, how, how did you become famous? I said, well, I don't know. He says, well, you must know. I said, no, I don't. I said, I have never planned this. Nothing I've ever done is a plan. What's happened is I've just fallen into what I think is a combination of a passion, a focus, uh, a dream to come true. I never worried about money. I never got up to make money. I got up to be a better hairdresser and to treat staff like I would want to be treated. My, I've got Nathan, who's my head colorist, is 26 years, he's been with me. I've got Tiziana, who's been 22 years. I've got Joe, she's there, 21. I keep my staff. And I'll tell you why, I have to, well, I treat them like I want to be treated, number one. Number two, I have to inject an ethos in them. It's a discipline. It's a discipline that everyone has to adhere to, and that is simply quality of work. Mm. If a superstar or wannabe superstar came to work for me, he'd last five minutes. I don't want anyone walking around and sort of like, oh, look at me, you know, one of these sort of hairdressers that you like to dislike. He wouldn't last five minutes with me. Ego-driven, me, 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 has no place in my salon. Okay, so a lot of people probably don't know that you started off as a barber in your dad's mm -hmm. barbershop in Paisley, small, is it, I'm not even sure if it's a city. You know, it's a town. It's a, a, right, so it's a town in Scotland. Yeah. And that was your entrance into this industry. So what I wanted to ask you was, how did that contribute? I mean, you're talking about Vidal and his humility, yeah. but how did that upbringing that you had, that entrance into this industry of five years working in your dad's barbershop in Paisley, how did that help you stay grounded? Because you're, you're a very humble, open, you know, presence. There's no airs and graces about you. There never seems to have been in all the time that I've seen you on the on the mm. world stage of hairdressing. You've always been this very natural, grounded, open, honest guy. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of that obviously comes from your background, your upbringing. Well, when you land in Paisley, you're actually landing um, in Glasgow Airport. So I'm six miles from Glasgow Airport. That is probably a better reference right. for people yeah. listening to this. I lived in a, uh, a block of flats. In Scotland, they call it a tenement building. Mm. I shared those flats with other couples. There was an outside toilet everyone used. Every Friday night, there was a big tin bath that my mum and dad brought out filled with water, and me and my brother had that. At Christmas time, I remember we had mints um, and potatoes that was our Christmas lunch we had one present I got the car inside the box and my brother got the box <laughs> <laughs> but we shared it. it it was modest to say the least um, we lived in a excuse me we lived in an area where there was a, 
at the bottom of the street, a gang of thugs, and they were always trying to get me and my brother into a fight. My brother always stood in front of me and says, you know, you've got to get through me first to get to him. Mm. And he meant it as well. So, you know, we never really got into hard knuckles, but the, the fear was always there when I was walking down that street. Then I, I got bullied at school. Again, it was a tough school, and I had to join a gang to stay <laughs> alive. You know, you don't want to be the odd man out and you've got these crowd of kids that are all praising this one guy who's he's a complete bully. And I felt it was, it was healthier to join the gang than not. And I messed around with them. I didn't get into too much trouble. But then I, I'll tell you something, Anthony, when I was about 15, 16, and this is the only time that I think I can, if you like, pat myself on the back, I never was one of them. I felt special. And I don't know in which way I felt special. I just felt I didn't fit in mm. to the environment I was living in. And I decided that uh, I would move out of, well, when I got bullied, I went to work for my father. He said, what do you want to do, son? I says, well, I wanted to do art, but I'm not staying there any longer. So he said, come in the barber shop and see how you get on. And uh, I did, washing hair, sweeping floor. And after five years, I actually got fed up because uh, the only customers I was doing were people that worked at Ford Motor Company, you know, yeah. factory workers, and all they wanted was short back and sides, no hairstyling, mm. just cut it off. And most of them were drunk anyway when they came in, so they couldn't even appreciate what I did. But um, then I gave up hairdressing. I, it bored me. So I went back to my parents. I said, look, I'll go back into hairdressing, but I want to do ladies. It's more interesting. There's perming, colouring and styling. I said, that would, I think, quench my thirst for hairdressing. So they sent me to a college in London, in Baker Street, called the Richard Henry School of Hairdressing. And I did a six-month course. It cost £100, which was a lot of money for my parents uh, in those days. And uh, the last day, when I actually left, I was saying goodbye to all my friends that I'd met. And I said goodbye to the principal of the college. And he said, Trevor, one sec, I have a word with you. I said, yeah. He said, Trevor, I see something special in you. And I think you should go to a really good salon. I said, do you really? I said, what do you see? And he says, you're different. And you don't see yourself as different. You don't see yourself as special. And certainly not that age. And I went to Vidal Sassoon. I didn't stay there long because I was training. I was living in a place called Harlow in Essex. It took two hours to get to work, two hours to get back. They weren't paying me. Um, and I left. And then I went to a suburban salon called Henri, or Henry's, if you like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I learned a lot there. It was roller setting. It was uh, perming, colouring. 30 clients a day. That taught me a lot about just not using scissors. It taught me how to style hair, how to wave hair. And I was working with two girls that were fantastic hairdressers. Absolutely. Um, and I moved from there to a, a place called Selfridges. It was in a big department store. I stayed there for a while. And then 
I was at the age where I was about 20 and fashion was becoming important to me and I wanted to look good and, you know, meet girls and all of that stuff. So I went back to Sassoon's and I got a job there. And within 18 months, I became an artistic director at the Grosvenor House Salon. And that's where they used to put all the, if you like, the potential, let's say, the stars of tomorrow, yeah. Daryl Benson, Howard Fugler, Herta Keller, Roger, Christopher, they were sort of in that salon. Um, and they put me in there. And um, then I started really getting into a serious note. You know, Anthony, in life, there's things that you know you can't do. There's things you know it's possible to do. I could never jump out of an aeroplane with a parachute on. I could never do a bungee jump. I couldn't swim to the bottom of the sea. I, there's just so many things I know I couldn't do. It's not in me. But what I used to do, I used to stand on that salon floor. I never sat in a staff room listening to all the rubbish and politics and backbiting that goes on in every staff room at some point. I used to stand on that floor and just watch these eyes working. They all worked in their own little ways, you know, they all had their own style, but the results were just like, oh my God, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I'm going to be like that. Mm. This is doable. I, I know I can push myself harder. And that's when it really set into me that that was my future. Yeah. Listening to to how you've been talking about that with, you know, from the barbershop to uh, working in that salon with those two women out in the suburbs or whatever, and then back into Sassoon's. And then you also mm. mentioned that you'd worked with Tony and Guy at some point. You'd worked with John yeah. Frieda. You'd done some editorial session work, etc. How much of that was about you finding your own style of work. Because interestingly, you know, Sassoon have a style of work. Tony and Guy had a style of work. And and yeah. Trevor Sorby has always been renowned for being able to do everything. You know, you, you cut hair, you dress hair, you yeah. razor hair. Yeah. You know, it, it's yeah. sort of like, I'm not going to be pigeonholed here. I'm yeah. going to learn to work with hair and use whatever tools that I need to to create yeah. the looks I want. Yeah. Talk to me about how important that was for you, because I, I really think that was one of the things that set you apart, particularly in that era, in the in the sort of 80s and 90s, when I was in London, um, you know, as a hairdresser. You know, variety is the spice of life. You know, you work for Tony and Guy, they were doing sort of nice haircuts, but the round brushing, their use of the round brush was fantastic. And I learned to use round brushes. Um, John Frieda, beautiful hairdresser. I saw every Saturday when I was working there, two twins came in, red hair down to just past his shoulders. Every week they came in. I never saw him do the same hairstyle twice. Every Saturday he'd do something different just by plaiting or just putting one piece up. Or and I, I thought, God, he, you know, he's, he's got a bucket load of ideas that he can just turn to working with Nicky Clark. He's beautiful editorial stuff, how he got those lovely waves in the hair. That obviously, when they're in front of a camera and the wind's blowing and stuff, he makes it look magical. A beautiful hairdresser. Um, Anthony Muscolo, well... 
he was my assistant when I joined and I, I used to watch him have a sketchbook and he would like drawing hairstyles and even then I thought this guy's going to be good mm. he's into it yeah. and I took bits out of everywhere I went and I sort of put mashed that into my way of working to be able to put hair up to be able to cut with a razor, to be able to blow dry and make it look like she walks out from a salon in Paris or whatever. And I always thought, if I'm going to do this job, I'm going to learn everything I can about it. I wasn't interested in perming, and I actually wasn't interested in colour. It was styling. That's where my heart and soul was. But when you're working with great stuff permits and great colorists we we connected they knew exactly what i wanted so um yeah um and i just turned that into my own when did you know it was time to open your own salon well i didn't really have that on the list um this is why i say i didn't plan anything and one day, a guy called Grant Pete, he had eight shops in the suburbs, and he was trying to do the Vidal Sassoon thing, but in the suburbs. And he opened a shop in Covent Garden. It was desolate in Covent Garden, but he wanted to have a West End address. And he said, Trevor, how would you like your own shop? And I said, well, yeah. I said, well, 50-50, my name above the door. He went, you got a deal. So I went into an empty shop, no clients, no people really passing at that time. The shop, it was desolate area. But slowly and surely. But what happened, what happened was interesting because I was in a very, very creative... I had something burning in me where I wanted to... I, I, this is me in a nutshell. I'm not interested in what I know, Anthony. I'm much more interested in what I don't know. And I want to know what I don't know. And I used to dream up like hairs. I'll give you the best example. Punk, right, in the 80s. Spiky, you know, safety pins, dirty look, anti-establishment. I loved that. Not because I'd wear it. I loved it went warm, opposite to what was really happening in the mainstream. And I thought, right, what's the opposite of good taste? bad taste what's the opposite of being accepted not being accepted i'm going to do something that is all of that i had an oriental guy you may have seen the picture and instead of using everything at that time was still you know hard lines very system orientated and i decided to turn it all upside down so instead of cutting hair with the scissors and getting a blunt end cut it with a razor so I had a thin wispy end. Instead of hair coming down, I put it out and I blow dried it all out straight. Then I thought, what's the opposite of a good colour? A bad colour. Let's do a regrowth. Let's just tick let's just bleach the ends and leave the roots. And when it's finished, it looked amazing. We called it the wolf man. Yeah. And you may have seen the picture. I can get it to you. I've got it here, mate. Don't worry. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thank you. But that was who, where I was up here. Now, the people who come, people who walk past my shop, they, and I had that in my front window, by the way. 
people that walked past my shop, they looked at it. One of two things they thought to themselves, I ain't going in there for a haircut, it's not me. And the others came in. People like um, Grace Jones, um, Paul McCartney, um, Vivian came in, yeah. Vivian Westwood. Yeah. Um, just a load of new wave music mm. people. Yeah. I was starting to create a noise. In that time, there was people coming through, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Mary Quant. Um, there was a, a new wave of youth coming through very strongly, photographers, David Bailey, etc. And I was sort of getting in that groove of being different, being original, being youthful. And bottom line was, three months after I opened my my business partner said, Trev, if you don't make some money, we're going to have to close the doors. I went, why? I says, we're getting some really good people in. He says, yeah, and you're doing all the hair for nothing as well, just to get a name. But I went, yeah, well, you know, the rest will follow, hopefully. Anyway, I was pushed into having to put a nice soft haircut in the window and try, and the punters came in and it built up really well. Yeah. But, so, you know, so how long was he your business partner for? Up until I sold the company, which is what four years. Ago. Oh wow! Okay, so all that time through, he was so yeah, like silent business partner. Is I I'd heard the name, but like mm. he he obviously kept a very low profile, and that was probably the mm. way that he liked it and that you liked it, etc. So I'd sort of assumed that maybe that was something that petered out years and years ago, but right up until yeah. three or four years ago, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean. It wasn't a good relationship. Right. I hated him and he hated me right. because he was he was solely into making money yeah. and I was solely into my craft. Yeah. And we would butt heads many times. Mm. I said, Grant, you know, I need to I need three thousand pounds to buy these dresses. Well, why can't you go to Sarah or Marks and Spencer? I was like, Shut up, Grant, you don't understand. Yeah, I do understand. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> and we never used to speak that much to each other. Right. It was like a rot horrible relationship, but it worked. But, well, he looked because after all the business side, all the back end, and he paid all the bills. He, and... I, yeah. yeah. What I didn't know after about 15 years of being together, his dream, and I, he didn't tell me this until like 15 years into our partnership, he says, I've always seen you with the product line, Trevor. I went, Really? He says, yeah. He said, that's where I'm heading. And I thought, oh, all right. But you had a product line at one stage, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. So We had a 10-year um, contract with Boots. Right, okay. But And then you sold it to Redken, didn't you, at some stage? Yeah. Yeah. What actually happened, um, <laughs> I, we didn't create the product line. It created us. I was at the New York Beauty Show and I just invented scrunch drying. Mm. And I was right at the back of the massive um, Jacobs Center, whatever it's called. Yeah. And uh, the only way you could find me is if you got lost. But I got a crowd of people, a lot of people just around me and there was no other stands near me. I was right at the back. But I held this crowd because all I was doing was showing them how to scrunch. And in that room, Four men were standing there with suits, and they were just looking at me, and I thought, well, they 
They're not hairdressers, I can tell that, but I didn't know who they were. Anyway, finished the demonstrations for the day, and they came up to me and they said, uh, Mr. Sorby, how would you like your name on a bottle? I went, yeah, 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 why not? <laughs> you know, not, not really thinking of anything, but yeah, why not? And um, they said we'd be interested in um, investing in you for a product line. Right. You have to skip along a bit, but we developed a bottle, at won an award, the shape of the bottle, actually, and it was my job to go around America and, and sell the ship, uh, which I did because I, I was contracted, and um, it became my job, really, to spend half my time in America and half my time in the UK. Yeah. Uh, it was very demanding. Yeah. But then... But then it got sold to another guy. Ruffler was the company that bought it first. Ruffler sold it to a guy whose name, I would have definitely changed my name if it was, his name was um, Hans Führer. <laughs> yeah, you would change your name. And he, and he, and he acted like one. Right. He then sold it to Redkin. Right. Uh, L'Oreal bought Redkin. Mm -hmm. L'Oreal bought Trevor Sorby and Redkin. And I thought, well, great, I'm now with the company. And L'Oreal didn't want me. And I said, why, why don't you want me? They said, Trevor, we just bought a company worth, you know, $300 million. Your company's worth $14 million. It would take us a lifetime to get you up to where this company is. Yeah. We don't need you. We're going to put all our energies into Redkin. I understood that. Mm -hmm. So from there, we were sold to a guy called Charlie Hall, and he was good to work with, lovely man. And fortunately, he died in a hotel one night um, from a heart attack. But that got then sold on to a company called, um, it was in Florida, I can't remember offhand. And we had to take them to court in the end because they weren't, they were fiddling and not paying royalties and that. Anyway, we got the com we got all our rights back, and um, we could go worldwide with our rights. But we didn't spend one penny of our money in that. And having said that, I had a company that's worth multi millions, and not one penny ever came out of my pocket for the salon or for the products. I had a free ride financially, but somehow through good business sense and all of that, we built up a multi-million pound company. And that's the whole story. I mean, it was... Yeah, I knew bits of it, but I didn't know all the, you know, the, the end results. Yeah. There. If, if you were a young hairdresser listening to this now, and you mm. were thinking to yourself, I want to have my own product company, which a lot of people do, they want to start their own yeah. line, what one, what one bit of advice would you give them? Don't... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for, no, for every I, huge success story, there's a lot that fall by the wayside, yeah. isn't there? It's like I don't know yeah. what I don't know what percentage survive, but you know, is it is it one in yeah. twenty, one in fifty, whatever? You know. Um, well, firstly, you have to build a reputation. Mm. You know, you, you've got to have some outside awareness. I, at the time, I was doing television, morning programs, makeover programs. I was on television quite a lot. So the general public in this country knew me because they see me. And when I came out to do a makeover, oh, ladies and gentlemen, Trevor Sorby. Well, what's the name on the bottle? Trevor Sorby. 
we made a 10-year contract with Boots and I had to fulfill that and um, I did. It's not easy because it's packaging, it's formulas, it's meetings, it's, oh, it takes 80% of your time up. And that's what I hated about it. Mm. I was dragging me away from what I do best. Was, was your was your business partner involved in that side of it? Or? Oh, 100%. Right, okay. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was his baby, if you like. Yeah, sure. I, I just went along for the ride, basically. Uh, but I had to work it. You know, I had to do demonstrations all over the country. And uh, they flogged me to death. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I... I was up for it, you know. I, look, even though money's not my motivation, I'm not completely stupid. You know, yeah. I want to live well. Yeah. Um, and I knew that products make good money. Yeah. And I, I do have to say, if you really want to make the big money, it is products. Yes, yeah. okay. I'm talking big money. Yeah. You, you know, even if you have 10 salons and you're doing well and you'll make Quite a lot of money if you had 10 salons, but you'll never make the money that, you know, John Frieda sold out for 300 million, Tony and Guy sold for 40, um, you know, Charles Worthington, I think, got 50 million. Mm. You, can't, you can't make that in salons. No, definitely, definitely. Um, I know you said that you sold your salons uh, about yes. four years ago. Um, yeah. And yet there are Trevor Sorby salons. They seem to be expanding. How many of them are there now and, and what sort of involvement do you have? Right. Firstly, I'll tell you why I sold. That's the most important part of this. My business partner, partner was fed up. Mm. He was older than me. He wanted out. He wanted to retire. He had no mortgage. He had a boat and everything. He just wanted a happy life. So I was what? 70. My first wife got my house. My second wife got my pension. On paper, I'm worth money, yeah. but I can't buy a bag of sugar with this bit of paper. Look, yeah. this is what I'm worth. No, cash, mate. <laughs> so at my age, no financial security as such, only on paper, I decided that, you know, and I'm realizing my age and... Uh, thinking, well, maybe this is the time. So I went along with it. Now, I dislike businessmen generally, only because of what I've been through. Um, and I know there's good guys out there. Their motivation is money. But what's more important to me is how a businessman treats an artist. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a machine. I can't deliver things like instantly I have to work hard at what I do to create what I show um, and this guy from Dubai came along he and he has a consortium he's got a big portfolio of beauty um, outlets mainly uh, reconstructions Botox big oh, okay. money stuff yeah, yeah. and he wanted to open a prestigious name in London. So he went around all the big names and he stopped at me and he went for it. And I said, look, his name is Imad. And I said, Imad, I said, look, I'm interested in selling. I said, but I've heard many businesses that sell, they change dramatically because they want their own systems and they want to do what they want to do. And I said, that's my fear. I said, I understand that the accounts and all the business side will have to be your, all your 
thing, and I'm not actually interested in that anyway. But the one thing that has to stay, and I said I'm willing to break the deal if this doesn't, if you don't commit to this, what happens inside those salons stays exactly as it is. That's what's made this company, what's inside those four walls. He said, Trevor, if I'd wanted to buy a McDonald's, I would have. Mm. I said, good answer. And he said to me, what do you see the future of, of Trevor Sorby? I said, I can tell you that right now. I don't have to think about it. Bearing in mind he's a businessman, I said, you know, there's a guy, he's no longer with us, his name's Vidal Sassoon, but his name is still alive. His salons are still running. Even though he's not with us, he is with us still in reputation. I want to do that. I, I won't see my dream because I'll be dead. Mm. But that's my dream, to live beyond me. Yeah, yeah, legacy. And he liked that answer. And I think that's what clinched the deal, <laughs> to be honest. So, so how many salons are there now? Right, there's six in, in England. Okay. Yeah, there's Brighton, which I'm going to later after this, uh, Covent Garden, Manchester, Bristol, and uh, Richmond. And there's three franchises in China, and there's a Trevor Sorby in Dubai, 10 altogether. Okay, fantastic. So who now is overall creative director of the brand? Okay, me. So you're still involved actively in that yeah. side of the company. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. They said to me, Trevor, um, look, do you want to stay on or mm. do you want to jump ship? I said, well, I didn't really want to sell, but I'd love to stay mm. in. So they said, would you sign a three-year contract? And I went, yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. So I signed that. And then after that, there's been no contracts, but they're keeping me on. Great. It's, like, it's just now a given that I'm... I'm part of the team, but I'm head of the creative. Good, good. Oh, that's that's brilliant. But you, so, you've always so. been known as someone, you know, Trevor Sorby Salon has been known as being an incubator for great talent. So over the years, you've had like the Vivian McKinders, the Antoinette Binders, Angelo Seminara, mm. Sally Brooks, Eugene Solomon, Tom Connell. I mean, that's a phenomenal legacy to have produced you know, through the, the, the house of Trevor Sorby to have names like that that have come through and gone out the other end. What is it that, that has made them special? And, and what did you do to bring out the very best in them? Well, firstly, for people to get to know you or want to get to know you and want to work for you, you have to impress them. Now, that is through the world of magazines, videos, um, any PR that you do, that's spread your name. And the right people see what they see and they're the ones you attract, the, the serious guys, not just somebody who wants a job, somebody who wants a career. They're the sort of people I... And here's, here's, this is the way I think, right? And this is how I grow my people. Yeah, they see me do techniques, they learn that stuff, but, you know, we're always moving on anyway, so we're always trying to invent. But most importantly, I, I spend more of my time not developing the stylists because they already have got what 
I'm about to tell you right now. I had a stylist, um, a young junior came in the other day, uh, well, two weeks ago, and he, he was so nervous to meet me and all of that. I said, listen, mate, can I teach you something? I said, this is what it's all about, okay? I said, now, listen to this little story. I've got a little seed in my hand. I'm going to put it in the ground, and I'm going to cover it in soil, and going to give it some water. You go back to it in a couple of weeks, and you'll see a little thing sprout out. Well, a little bit more water. And then after a couple of months, you'll see a little stalk. And you go, wow, it's growing. Now you're starting to have a feeling for this. Now you start to look, uh, nurture this plant, and so on. And all of a sudden, a leaf will come out, and then it will grow high. And, leaf. and then one day, you'll see a bud at the end of this stalk. And it'll start to open up like a flower. And all that care from when you planted that seed and nurtured it all the way up and you saw it grow and then look at that beautiful flower. You did that. You made that happen. And that's what it's about. It, you, the dream is this, but the staircase is a long one and it's step by step. I always said, yeah, I want to be one of those top boys. But what I'm going to do is set myself a goal and not make it easy, reach that goal. Right? I'll make another one, I'll reach that goal, and so on. And I climb the ladder, and before you know where you are, you're looking down and thinking, wow, I've come up. <laughs> and you just keep on going until you want to stop, or when you've had enough, yeah. or whatever. No. I was ready to stop. I wanted to be that flower. Yeah, yeah that was beautifully said. That was such a good analogy. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is when you've had people like that, you know, the caliber of those hairdressers sort of come through your business and then they leave. Mm. How do you react to that? Because a, a lot of salon owners, they feel that they've invested time in building and developing people. And, and then when someone leaves, they get really upset by it. Now, I know that you're only human. I'm sure you've had your moments, but you generally speaking, you're very positive about that. I've heard you talk about that before and say how yeah. they've reached the point where they have to move on now yeah. to continue their growth. Talk to me about that. Yeah, right. In any business, and you talk about even corporate world, what you do is you work to a point where you're actually training, training somebody to take that job mm. because you're moving on. Yeah. For that person to be replaced, there's got to be someone that can slot into it. So it's I'm teaching him, but he is teaching him. And um, we, I, we, we know we spot talent like that. You can see it. You, you feel it in people. And you're pushing them, them up the ladder. I'm pushing them up the ladder. Mm. And uh, we're still doing our thing up here. But we start to see people really sort of make the move to put that extra in and you can see oh, there's a possible art director in there somewhere and they make their position they make it but you can only work with the right mentality the right degree of commitment um, and treat them well and you know have in-house Soirees, do things, keep keep the excitement inside the company, um, and you'll see people grow quicker than others. You know, 
and then you can spot the winners yeah. as, you, as you go. Yeah. But but having said that, Angelo Seminara, for example, with me 15 years, and he said, Trevor, he said, uh, I hate to say this, but uh, I'm going to have to leave you. I said, good. I said, because you, no, yeah, yeah. because you are better than me now. Mm. And I always said, if I see somebody better than me, they should fly. And he went off and he got big major contracts and made a lot of money. And we, he's my best friend. He was, he was, he's my best man at my wedding. Um, he, and he calls me his father because his father died. I was with him when his father died. And he says, you're my new father. And it's that strong. Wow. It's that powerful. And Antoinette and Vivian, I still see them. We have lots of wonderful experiences that we share together. And all of those ladies and guys that I've talked about talk well of me mm. when they speak about Trevor Sorby. Yeah, I've never heard a bad, bad word. Yeah. So that's kind of it, really. I mean, just... How much of it, when you when you see those people as, as youngsters, when they start off with yes. you, when you, when you look at creativity, how much of it is a gift, a, a natural inbuilt thing, and how much of it is just plain hard work? It's a combination, firstly. Um, lots of people come and you think, their heart's not in it. You can spot it. In the, they come and go. Um, but when you, I can tell a good hairdresser not by even seeing what he does, just by listening to him or her. I can feel that, that energy, that passion, that want, that thirst that I had in my body. Um, and then you, you take them on, but you monitor them, you know, and sometimes that passion can go the wrong way. They just, I don't know, things happen in their life that is unavoidable and it changes mm. the dynamics of where they're at it's hard to pin it down to any one thing but when people are when people want to be me I can make them me but they've, that's got to be a big one mm. and I can spot that and I spotted it in all the names that you've mentioned okay. um, I heard you say once that you said, I'm not a good teacher. I'm not good at mm. teaching people how to, how to physically yeah. do it. Mm. He said, what I do is I teach people how to think. And I thought, wow, that's really insightful. So tell me what you mean by that. Right. I'm not a good teacher because teaching is another skill altogether. Now, one of the best teachers that I know is Vivian McKinder. She dissects a haircut like an orange. She'll take one section out and so on. She'll cut it down in such a descriptive, simple way. I can't do that. I'm like, well, look, if somebody says, well, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, it's right. Yeah, but how do you know? I said, because I feel it. That's me teaching. I don't know why I'm doing it. I know it's right, you know. That's why I'm not good. Having said that, when I go on stage, that's when I'm a good teacher. 
because I invent a hair, hairstyle and I make it look so easy and it's different, you would never have seen it before and people go, well, I can do that. The difference is, they didn't think of the idea, mm. I did. But, so I never go on and show them things that are impossible. And, you know, I'm not one of these hairdressers that builds a skyscraper on somebody's head and I'm dressed like a rock star and say, right, there you go, look how great I am. I bet you couldn't do that. And it's condescending to an audience when somebody does something that's it will never be used in any way, shape or form. I give them things that can be used. And that's harder than, than what you think. To do just a simple thing and, and know that the audience could have a real go at that and get it probably on their first go. Yeah. I, I break it up. I use humour, and I don't tell jokes. I tell funny things that happened to me whilst I was whatever I was doing in life at that moment. I show them things that they can do by themselves. I change the mood mm. as they go along. Did that I, come I, naturally, Trev? Did you? Did were you? Does that? Just, no, or I, did you work at that? Were you trained to be like that? No, I'll tell you exactly how that happened. I, I have suffered from depression over the years. And one year, I went right down. And I mean, I, I did a show in Boston, and Vivian was and my team were with me. And I was the show was at seven o'clock. I was still in bed at four o'clock under the covers. I just couldn't do the show in my head. And I said, I phoned Viv. I said, Viv, you've got to carry this show. I can't do it. She said, Look, can you get here? I said, Yeah, I'll get there. So I went and Viv did the show, basically. And I was at the back of the stage. I did a little haircut, said a few words. Uh, couldn't wait to get off. And that night, I'm sitting there having dinner. Vivian said to me, Trevor, you look like an old man right now. Um, my face was dropped. I was white, you know. Anyway, I, I got myself out of it. And then one day I said to Redkin, I want to do a show in Sacramento. And I want to do a one-man show. What, all by yourself? Yeah. I'm going to stand on a stage and do one haircut after another after another for one hour. And that was a do-or-die show. If it worked, I'd get back in the ring. If it didn't, I would have quit hairdressing. Mm. I had to put myself into that danger zone, that win or lose. It was clear in my head. It worked. And that was the start of me doing one-man shows. Now, when you say, come and see a Vidal soon show, you'll see four or five stylists up there, the uh, Tony Guy. They're all the same. They all have the team on stage. Now, this is, where I, this is where it goes wrong for me to do that. You start, the cameraman goes in on the first head, and they start at the bottom, whatever. And then they go into the second head. So, oh, what am I doing here? Blah, blah, blah. Third head. So, uh, come back to the first. Well, I've completed that. And all you saw was the start of it, but it's completed now. And now we're moving on to the next part. Mm. And you see a couple of sections have been taken there. And then it's over. Anyway, you never see any one person do a whole haircut. And I think that's not teaching mm. correctly. When I go on stage, I do a complete head from start to finish. Sometimes I'll do half a haircut and I'll say, look, 
this is what I'm going for, this is what I'm taking it from, big long length of hair. And that's a time purposes. Because I believe if you're doing a symmetrical haircut, for example, once you've seen one side... Yeah, you've seen both, yeah. Now you're starting to bore yeah, people because yeah. you're only repeating yourself. So I used to cut in on ways of saving time but still keeping it tight. And I wouldn't do a, two haircuts in a row. I'd do a haircut and then a hair up. Yeah. And then I'd do something else that was changed the mood. Yeah. Yeah. I once heard you say that the audience owes you nothing. You owe them everything. And that's why you're there. Leave the ego alone. Get rid of the ego and give all of yourself to the audience. Mm. And, and when I when I listened to that, you were on another podcast. I stopped it and rewound it, and I stopped it and I rewound it about three or four times because it is it's exactly what I believe. It's one hundred percent what you should be doing, and and you do that masterfully. Um, just talk to us a little bit about that before we move on. I do my homework, yeah, and every show, Anthony. Every show to me is the first show. I don't care how many times I've done the same show. I don't care how many standing ovations I've had. When I'm doing this show, I'm doing it. And you have to give it the same guts, the same energy, the same excitement every time as if it's your first. Because if you're going out and say, well, I, I can do this, but you know, I don't have to try too hard. I'm not going to push myself so hard today. No, you push yourself as far as you can go. Mm. Never let that rope slack. Mm. You know, before you were talking about the episode in the hotel room, you said you were under the covers. You know, you just couldn't get out of bed. You were like yeah. not in a good space. What advice would you give to someone else listening this about dealing with that pressure to live up to a reputation and constantly produce because it is pressure and you know you, you sort of willingly put yourself in that position but there's there's yeah. no rule book yeah. and sometimes yeah. it all becomes too much because you're only human so so how would you what would you say to someone about how you deal with that so that it either doesn't happen or when that is happening that this is what you need to do yeah right um firstly i have a ritual I'm usually working in the hotel where the ballroom's in the same place. I go upstairs and get myself ready and uh, start pumping my head a bit. And then I go into the bathroom and I look in the mirror hard at myself. So, right, you, I'm going to have a word with you. <laughs> if you don't come off that stage, I don't want to see you again. I want you to go out there and smash it. Do you hear me? Smash it. And then whack around the face. Now go and fucking get me. <laughs> now, having said that, I did a show, because I suffer so much with nerves. I did a show in Madrid, and I was having a panic attack backstage. And when I have a panic attack, it's not funny. Yeah. My body's shaking. I mean, I can't talk. And I'm all over the place. And um, one of the ladies said, Trevor, you can't go on. I said, I will go on. She said, no, look, the team are here. They'll take it. They can do it. You know they can't. I said, no. They came to see me. To me, they're going to see. I walked out on that stage very slowly. I've got this on film. I walked out on stage quite sort of unsure of myself. I stood there in front of the audience 
and I started, I went into one that was complete. Now the audience thought I was laughing and joking, and oh yeah, and I, I went to grab the chair and I stumbled and I nearly fell over. I said, look, sorry everybody, I said, I'm not feeling very good at the moment, but please stay with me. My assistant came out and he, he held me and the strangest thing happened. I said, come on, let's get, bring out the first model, come on. And my model came out and the minute I started touching her hair, it went. As soon as I touched the hair, wow. just went into a calm sea and I did one of my best shows that day. Good on you. Uh, yeah, fantastic. I can't explain any more why I'm to me than that. But thank God the hair put me into where I wanted to be. Wow, amazing. So Trevor, one thing I haven't mentioned so far is about my new hair. A lot of our listeners will be aware of the fact that you've been you know, very involved over the years in a project that you called My New Hair that you started, where you were cutting wigs voluntarily for cancer patients and that you were training hairdressers all over all over the UK. Was that even wider a field than just the UK? Oh, yeah. Uh, we've been to uh, Dubai. We've been to Canada. Um, the idea is to take it as global as we can in the time that we have. Okay. What was that story you were going to tell me about that? Because I know before we started recording, you said, oh, I've got, I've got a story about my new mm -hmm. hair that the listeners yeah. would be interested in. What was that? I'll preface it first. Um, when my sister-in-law got cancer, she said she was going to lose her hair. I said, well, I'll get, I'll get you a wig, Jackie. And I did, and I put it on, it looked like a wig, and I cut it in there. At that time, I was doing a lot of television stuff, and the word got out, and I got inundated with clients that wanted me to look after them. So I went to L'Oreal, and they gave me their space at their academy, and the wig company gave me weeks free of charge. And we taught, we've taught over, well, 1,500 people mm. now. Now, but there was one day that, it, oh, God, if there was 20 minutes of my life that I'll never forget in hairdressing, it was these 20 minutes. I was doing some voluntary work in a hospice, and uh, this lady nurse came up behind me and said, Trev, there's a lady downstairs, she's getting married at 3 o'clock. I went, all right. She said, she's got a wig and she'd like you to cut it. I went, okay, fine, no problem. She said, but it may not happen. I said, Why? They said, well, she may die before three o'clock. Well, that took my breath away because I've yeah. never seen a dead person or anyone that close yeah. as being dead. So I said, come on, Trev, brave it. So, right, down I went, private room, knocking the door, opened up. Tina, it's your lucky day. Trev's in town, and I'm going to make you look fantastic on your big day. She was lying on the bed in, the dress, in her wedding dress, as Daughter was on the end of the bed with streamers, cards, and everything around. Now, I had no idea what I was going to say. I, I didn't know what the atmosphere was going to be like or anything. In those 20 minutes, Anthony, I had one of the best times of my life. I was with a lady. We were laughing. We were joking. We were taking a piss out of different things. I wasn't in a room with a woman dying. Mm. I was in a room with a woman getting married. I left after 20 minutes. I said, Tina, enjoy your day. Go for it. And uh, I left her and I stood outside the door and I thought, hang on a second. 
I've just done something that no nurse, no medical professional could have done. I made the very back end of her life so pleasurable. I enjoyed it. She enjoyed it. She got married that day but passed the next. Um, but I, I did a wonderful thing and I felt so good about myself. And that's the thing, when you give, you get it back. Mm. And that's what all hairdressers do anyway when they've finished applying. If they're happy, it makes you happy. Well, this was an extreme version of that. But uh, I went out there and I just thought, I like me. I like me. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, that's a unique thing that hairdressers have to to offer. Mm -hmm. As you just said, doctors and nurses can't do it. Like, no. it's a hairdresser. And, and you being that, you know, that human that can give her yeah. some joy in her in her last hours on this earth is a very special well, gift. What, what um, if you had to, you know, you're at the back end of your career, mm. what would you look back on and say, these are my career highlights. What are the what are the top three? Um, it's hard. Um, let me let me put the words into well, your mouth. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking one of them has got to be getting an MBA from the Majesty well, of the Queen. Yeah, that's got to yeah. be one of them, surely. Yeah, yeah, no, hundred no, percent right. And that was the one I would have said first. Yeah. Uh, After that, I mean, winning hairdresser of the year four times, which hasn't been superseded yet. Yeah. Um, was definitely probably number two. Um, yeah, and it's got nothing to do with hairdressing this one because this is right up to today. The best thing that's happened to me since I gave up because I can't do it. Yep. When I was 14, I wanted to be an artist to paint and uh, I never did it because I went into hairdressing. Never picked a pencil up in 60-odd years. And when I sold the company, I actually went down again, real rock bottom. And I heard stories about people like when they, they retire, they're dead within a year, there's no reason for mm. them to get mm. up in the morning. And that. Um, so one day, I've got it, I can send these pictures to you. I drew three bananas, and uh, they looked like three dicks. <laughs> Next day, I tried to draw a glass, and that, that was rubbish, and that was rubbish. Three years later, what I'm doing now, I did an ink drawing of Karl Lagerfeld, and somebody bought it for £400. Wow. But here's the point. Every single day I'm in there practicing, practicing, practicing. I'm doing exactly what I did in hairdressing. I never do a drawing that I know I can do. Mm. I do a drawing and I think, oh, I don't think I can do that. But I do it and I get it. And then I'm going and, and I've taught myself and that's my new passion. I'm still into hair, mm. but now I've got something else that gets me out of bed and stimulates this, the brain. Yeah. You know, that's the organ that I work by, and the heart as well. Good. That's fantastic. Um, we mentioned the Queen. Uh, before mm. we started recording, we were talking about mm. you, you meeting the Queen. I mean, that is like, mm -hmm. you know, you said where you grew up and how you grew up. 
you know, a, a shared a bath and a tin bath and a, a tenement. I mean, going from that to standing in front of the Queen is a huge. I mean, I don't even know how to put words around that. What, what is that moment like? You know, young Trev standing in front of Her Majesty the Queen. Yeah. I mean, that is that yeah. just must be mind blowing. I can't get my head around it. Yeah. Just, just tell us how that was, and and then tell us about that subsequent meeting you had, which just blew me away. Yeah, well, I was living on my own at the time. I split up, and uh, I have always got a fear of the mail, and I used to let the mailbox. Three weeks I wouldn't open the mail and yeah. big parts. <laughs> and one day there was a brown envelope and it has a stamp on it. Didn't recognise it. Opened it up and it said, I can't think of the word for word, but we would like to um, honour you with a, an MBE uh, from the Queen and if you accept, we can you know, make that happen. I was like, wow. Wow! <laughs> I mean, you can't put certain things into words. Yeah. I, I was shocked. How long ago was anyway, this, Trevor? Two o four. Two o four. So your mum and dad were no longer alive. No, that's, no, that's, no, a, that's no, a shame. They, that would have been an amazing. They died many years right. before. They never saw any of my success. Oh, what a shame! Sorry, yeah. carry on. I've got a lot to tell. I've got a lot to tell them. When yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I went to the palace and I was so nervous I even forgot my pass to show security yeah. so they had to do a security check I mean if you're going to see England and Germany play football you don't leave your bloody <laughs> ticket home, do you well that's that's the equivalent I left my ticket at home anyway did a security check and you know went and I, I was dressed in top hat and tails I thought no I'm going to give my queen Full respect. And uh, we're, I was in a room, and there's a hundred people at every investiture, and they're there for different things that they've done, be it charity or whatever. Mm. And uh, you get spoken to by a guy in regalia and that, and uh, he said, um, he gives you the rules, uh, women must curtsy. And uh, when you watch it, I was right at the back, because I was on my own, and I saw these women ducking up and down, look, practicing their curtsy. Mm. And, and the gentlemen have to bow, and us all these guys sort of bow. So we're all practicing because we're all shit scared. Anyway, you get lined up, and uh, you go in one at a time. And um, he said, it was my turn. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome Mr. Trevor Sorby for his contributions to hairdressing. Walk up. Stop, bow, go up, shake pins, needle on you. Um, she said, I understand you do some rather strange hairstyles. <laughs> I said, well, you imagine. <laughs> yeah, I don't answer that. Um, I said, well, you, you imagine I try and invent new ideas and try and push the barriers out. And, you know, I'm always experimenting. Experiment. So, oh. Very good. She said, I've seen you on television. You're very good at what you do. I said, oh, thank you very much. She, and then she said, we must have a chat one day. I went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then she, to get rid of you, she takes your hand and she just goes, mm, a little nudge. Right, 
bugger off, you've had your 30 yeah. seconds, and off you go. And you have to back off, you don't turn your back on it, and off you go. And I've got this great bit of footage, because they film it all for you, and I'm walking down, I've got my medal, I'm walking down, and you just see me go... <sighs> <laughs> like that. And uh, that was it. Two weeks later, I get a call from Buckingham Palace, and uh, I entered the private area with all the family photos and everything. And uh, I was in there for about 45 minutes talking because she wanted me to be a hairdresser. And um, uh, I can't even remember what we were talking about, but she was lovely. I mean, such a lovely kind. And what a brain. I mean, she was really, you know, there was nothing. She had plenty of... Uh, she power left in her memory. So what, you, you had one, you had forty five minutes with her in her in yeah. her own state rooms, whatever yeah. they're referred to, yeah. chatting about yeah. hair, and she was asking you to be her yeah. regular hairdresser. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't just about hair because yeah. she. I, I said, um, "I'm a Formula One fan. Uh, do, do, you, <laughs> do you like motor racing?" And she went, "No." I thought. Right, okay, <laughs> so It was a definite no, yeah. And then at one, at one point, you know, she's got eight corgis all lying, they're all fat and they're all asleep. So um, I'm standing there chatting to her and I felt something rub against my leg and I thought, I sort of looked around and I saw it was a dog and I said to myself, God, don't shag my leg in front of your mum or pee up me, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> which he didn't, but uh, it's just one of these... I tell, I, I tell you one thing, we, we do employ the Queen's hairdresser, actually, he got reinstated, and he told me a funny story I thought it was really good. Um, he was shampooing her hair, and uh, she had a gown on, but her skirt was sort of showing, and a, a, a bubble, you know, froth bubble went over her and landed on her skirt. I was sorry, ma'am. And he went round, and you know how you sort of, um, if you've got a bit of material, you put, you put, you put your hand underneath it, and, and you sort of do that. Mm -hmm. And he did that with his skirt, and he said to himself, only to himself, I bet it's been a long time since she's had her hand up. <laughs> he told me that back in the staff room. I pissed myself laughing. Oh my god! Can you imagine it? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. No. I mean, yeah. so you, know, you never did a hair. You basically, basically, you couldn't do it. And no, I couldn't do it. Um, you know, you'd have to have gone to Australia with her. You had to go to America. You had to drop everything. Yep. And you know, I, I was in full flown business, and just wouldn't happen but the thing is and this is the way I see things in life Anthony I think we're here for a period that period is can be as long as short as it nature will allow and I think that if you if you walk down a road and said to anyone how would you like to be successful they go yeah okay well why aren't you because most people like the idea, but are not prepared to mm. put in what it takes. Mm. I, if at the end of your life you say, I was, I was successful, and you went to a bank manager and said, I'm really successful, 
he'd say, how much money have you got? And he'd judge you on money. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think on that level. What I think the greatest wealth is the journey. And if you can say at the end of this life that you came from here, you did that, you achieved this, it went on to that, that happened. That. If you can say that your life was successful, you're wealthy, mm. beyond wealth. Yeah. And that is what, if God forbid, you know, I'm on the back end, I've got a serious disease, if I were, had to leave this earth tomorrow, I'd say, okay, time's up. But boy, did I have fun mm. while I was here. Yeah. And I can take that up to my mum and dad yeah. and tell them all about it. Good. That is what, how I want to end Good. my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. That's a, and that's, <laughs> a, that's a great place to end it, you know, like with that feeling of success and what success really means to you. Yeah. So dying doesn't worry me. Dying doesn't worry. It doesn't bother me. The only thing I don't want is to die in pain. Mm. But I don't mind dying yeah. because I've done everything I ever more than what I ever thought I could do. Mm. So to go beyond your wildest dream yeah. is uh, well. I know. Well, yeah. I know you've been battling this for a while. I mean, it's incredible that you're as fit and healthy and you know mentally focused and alert as what you are, which is brilliant. <laughs> I've had five cancers in three years, you know, and uh, even to your viewers right now, this bottle I'm holding up mm. is full of chemotherapy, and that's attached mm. to my body mm. right now. And when this interview is over, that's been taken out, and then I've got another one to do in two weeks. So. What I'm saying to you is this, and this is this is this connects to hairdressing. When you're positive, when you know within yourself that it's possible to do whatever you want, I'm a person that can prove that that can happen. Be it in hairdressing, be it fighting can cancer. Yeah, I've got cancer in here. Not in here. Not at all. It doesn't exist in my head. I don't wake up saying, oh, I'm going to die. Oh, poor me. No way. You can hear it in my voice. I'm full of life, and I'll continue to be like that until my day comes. Mm, okay. Well, we need to uh, start wrapping up, unfortunately. I could sit here and keep talking to you for ages, but I know you've got places to get to as well. If I can just ask you one, one last thing here. What's mm. the biggest, and you might have already answered it, what's the biggest lesson that you've learnt in life? Not necessarily hairdressing. Uh -huh. Like just as you know, as you allude to, you, you're at the back end of your career, yeah. at the back end of your life, and if you're looking back at it, going, well, the number one thing that I would say is the most important thing. What would it be? Very simple: be the nicest person you can be. Don't hold hatred in your body. Mm. That's negative. That can materialise into horrible things. That can fester. Um, respect everybody, religion, colour, everything that a human being is. And treat people like you want to be treated yourself. The people I have most respect for on this earth 
and obviously because I've experienced a lot of it, is the medical profession. I think that is the most wonderful advancement in life um, and it's there to help people get well. The science that's learned is ongoing, it's amazing. You know, I spoke to my surgeon um, the other week and I said, if this happened to me five years ago, what I've got now, I said, what would have happened? He said, you'd be dead. Wow. He said, in five years, we have, we have, def we have pushed on through science, through uh, breakthroughs. Chemotherapy, for example, is one fits everybody. It wasn't one just for you or one for you, a different one for this person. It was a bottle of poison. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And invariably, it didn't. And that's why people fear chemotherapy, because they think it's you get the same bottle as the next person. It's not. It, it's, it's, it's a cocktail that's designed for you. And in five years, they've designed a, a chemotherapy that's kept me alive for five years and ongoing. Mm. That is a wonderful thing. But, you know, people... We have to be responsible for ourselves. Mm. And we, somebody said, now this may really affect people's thinking, and I don't mean to upset anyone, but everyone has a belief, and I have my beliefs, and you can't knock my belief, and I won't knock anyone else's belief. But when we talk about religion, you talk about God. Well, I've never seen God. Um, and I uh, find it a little bit hard to understand how someone can be so majorly powerful and yet we can't see him or know him. Or... I believe God is in all of us. And I believe I am God. Mm. I'm God to myself. I'm responsible for myself. My actions are mine. And the way I conduct my life would be the way I would imagine if there was such a person as God, he'd be pleased with me. Mm. Well, Trevor, I think that's beautifully said and it's a perfect place to start to wrap up. I just want to finish off with a heartfelt thank you, not just from me, but from generations of hairdressers the world over that have been influenced by your decades in this industry of being a real icon and a, a legend in the hairdressing industry. And I hate using those words, but when you're, when you're talking, because they're overused, but when you're talking to Trevor Sorby, um, then, then what else can you use? You know, there, there's, there's no more superlatives left to describe the contribution that you've made to the industry the world over. So uh, thank you for all you've given the industry. Uh, any final words before we wrap up? Well, I'll repeat what I said. If you want something enough, you can do it. Yep. It's not easy, but if you really want it that bad, you can succeed. Yep. Take me as an example. Perfect. That little kid from Scotland did all right. Yeah, exactly. You can do all right. Exactly. Okay. Well, if you're listening to this podcast with Trevor Sorby and have enjoyed it, do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. So to wrap up, Trevor Sorby, thank you for being on this week's Grow My Salon Business podcast. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for asking me. I enjoyed every second. 
I just want to say to you viewers that none of this was scripted. I didn't know what questions you were going to ask me. Everything I said came from the heart and it was there. The reason was whatever I've said, I hope some of those words stick with you and uh, helps you in your future career. So um, I hope it's been valuable to all of you in some way. It has. Thanks, Trent. All right, mate. Stay looking young. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.